So first things first, we're going to talk about the transfiguration today, right? We're in Matthew 17. We're continuing in our Matthew series. The transfiguration, you know, just a little story, just not a big deal, right? Um, this is one of the, like, I, I consider it one of three big cosmic stories, right? Cosmic meaning, like, the entire universe plus, right? Like, this is one of those stories that, that impacts, it's, it's in the Jesus narrative, but it impacts everything, right? The other two would be the, the birth of Christ, right? And then the, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. Um, I kind of grouped those all as one, right? But, but there's the, the third one, and it doesn't get talked about a lot. And the reason it doesn't get talked about a whole lot is because theologians don't really know what to do with it. <laughs> it's a really wild story, right? And so I think it's important to get some context first before we jump in. Um, so the Bible, right, as a narrative, it's, it's got a certain structure to it. And that structure is, is chiastic, we like to say. That's the word for it, right? It's chiastic, right? And what that means is if you think of like a, a sandwich, like a burger, right? And you turn it upside down. You have the buns on this side, right? You got like your lettuce and your tomato on this side and they match each other. And then maybe you got like your mustard and your ketchup, right? And they match each other. And then in the middle, you got the meat, right? And Jesus is the meat of the larger narrative structure. But you start with like garden in the first two chapters. You end with garden in the last two chapters. On, on this side of Jesus, you have Yahweh's walk with Israel, on this side, you have the Holy Spirit's walk with the church, right? You see these parallels that are happening in the story. And one of the things that Matthew is doing is putting Jesus uh, not just in the context of the story, but he's actually like rewriting the story through Jesus uh, in the narrative. This is why we have Jesus go up on the mountain and deliver the Sermon on the Mount, right? He's delivering the law just like Moses delivered the law, right? We see in the narrative structure of Matthew, we see this a whole lot. And so when we get to, to the Jesus narrative, the Jesus narrative actually also parallels this, this structure, this chiastic structure. His life does. And right in the middle of it, right in the middle of this, this we get the transfiguration. And it's like the, the seminal point in his like, ministry. It, it serves as, as a kind of fulcrum, a pivot, where the first half of his ministry, um, it's been healing. He's, he's faced adversity. But after this, it's, it's all downhill. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to face the passion. He's going to be crucified. And so this is the pivotal point in the story um, where the readers of Matthew would see it and, and immediately stop. Okay, we have to go back and reread everything again in light of this new revelation um, that just happened, and then before you finish the story. Um, let's, uh, let's start by reading. We're in Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. He led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before him, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice 
from the clouds said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and that they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So we're going to focus really on like the first eight verses of this um, passage, and we'll talk a little bit about the last part. But the first thing that happens is, this is such a crazy story, right? It says, after six days. So what is, uh, that's important. Matthew doesn't put that in there on accident. What is he bringing to mind when he says, after six days? What comes to your mind? Creation, yeah. So again, this is a cosmic story. He's putting this in the context of the larger narrative of Scripture, right? You see that right off the bat by just him saying, after six days. Um, Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. These are the dudes he always takes with him everywhere. Like even when he, he gets away, most of the time he takes, he takes these three dudes with him. Um, and, uh, and it says he was transfigured. This word, uh, transfigured, does anyone know um, what the root word for that is? Anybody? Metamorphosis. That's right. That's right, John. John studied this. Yeah, metamorphosis. Yeah. So what, what else? What comes to mind when you think of metamorphosis? I think of butterflies. What do you, what do you guys think of? Butterflies? That's basically it. What else? Maybe just butterflies? Frogs, frogs, yeah, 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 tadpoles and frogs, right? I, I really love the idea of the butterfly because it goes into this cocoon and it becomes goo, right? Like the caterpillar, the caterpillar comes and, and it, it, it like dissolves into like this, into nothing, into goo. And then restructures itself. It metamorphoses. I think of Power Rangers. No, I'm just joking. The, it metamorphoses into a butterfly, right? And comes out as something completely different than when it went in to start the process. This is the root word in the Greek for transfigure. So it's not like Jesus just suddenly, he like got a little bit brighter or whatever, right? No, this is a massive transfiguration. This is a massive metamorphosis that Jesus goes through before them. It's got to be shocking and bewildering, right? It's got to be just completely blowing their minds. And Moses and Elijah show up. Now, what, is, what do you think the importance is of Moses and Elijah? There's really no wrong answers to this one. Anybody see anything in Moses and Elijah? Why those two would show up? Moses is the giver of the law. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What about Elijah? Yeah, sure. Sure, exactly. So he symbolizes the prophets, right? He stands in for the prophets. So you have here the law and the prophets represented in two persons standing next to Christ. And, and I think the main idea of that is that 
Matthew is trying to point out a couple of things. Um, there's two main themes that go through his whole gospel. And one of them is, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. We see this because Matthew, as you've noticed, quotes a lot of Old Testament scripture. If you look at the other synoptic gospels, they quote scripture, but Matthew is like three times as much as like the other ones combined. Like he quotes so much Old Testament scripture. And the reason he's doing that, he's writing to the Jewish people to, to try and establish this fact that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the one that was foretold to come and um, that he is God in the flesh. Um, so, then, so then Jesus is just chilling with these guys and Peter opens up his mouth. Now, I love me some Peter. Uh, I've, <laughs> I identify with Peter a whole lot in my life. Um, whenever there's something uh, uh, important happening, you can always count on me to say the dumb thing. That's what Peter does right here, right? He doesn't know what to do, right? He doesn't know what to do. He's terrified. And he's with two other dudes. Like, are y'all seeing this? Let me just confirm this by, like, shouting out, like, hey, we should post up right here, right? Why do you think, um, why do you think what's Peter's motivation, do you think, for saying that they should put up tents? Can anyone think of anything? I think maybe, maybe, oh, sorry, did I interrupt this? Sure, yeah. How many of you guys have had, like, super deep spiritual experiences that, that, that affected you and changed you, and you just want to, or like summer camp as a kid, right? And you just want to stay there. You don't want to leave. You don't want to go back to normal life. Like, this is too great. This is too good. Let's just post, post up here forever, right? And we never can. Life still just continues. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's let's talk a little bit about God's presence there. Um, how do we see since we since we got on it? <laughs> no, no, we're no. That's perfectly fine. How do we see the, I love the fact that this is, this is way more conversation than it is TED Talk, by the way, if you haven't figured that out, we're going we're gonna to talk here. So um, how do we see the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit represented in this story? Two, two are pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where does the where do you see the Holy Spirit? So that's good. You see you see Jesus, you see Jesus' father represented. Where do you see the Holy Spirit represented in this story? She's there. The light, yes. The light. Also the cloud. So if you look back on like um Exodus thirty four specifically. Um, you get this uh, Moses up on Mount Sinai, right? And he's talking to God. The, the cloud descends. And this, in this cloud, um, the, it's referred to the, the Shekinah glory, right? Or in Texas, they might say the Shekinah glory, right? You get the, the, this, this Shekinah glory. Um, and when Moses descends from this cloud, 
the light is reflecting off of his face so badly that they, he has to veil his face when he comes down because he's been face to face with God. And here in this, what's interesting about this is that the, the source of light actually comes from Jesus himself. It's not just his clothes that are glowing like Moses' was. It's not just his face that's glowing. He becomes like light itself. It's this crazy radical thing that just points to, again, the, the, the divinity of, of Christ. And the cloud is there, and that represents the, the Holy Spirit. Just like on Mount Sinai, this is probably Mount Tabor. Um, but the, the, the cloud descends on it. The Holy Spirit is there in the midst, right? Good. Going back to the, the other question, what, what's another reason that maybe um, Peter wants to set up tents there? Can you think of another reason? <laughs> sure, I absolutely think that that's part of it too, where he's like, someone's got to say something or this isn't real, right? If we don't engage in some way with whatever that is that's happening... Maybe it's not even real, right? Yeah, I definitely think there's some of that. That would have been my motivation. I also think that there's maybe a motivation of, of remember, there's all this talk of the kingdom. And Peter so far hasn't shown, really, that he understands. Him specifically, out of, out of all the others, him specifically, he doesn't really show that he understands what that means, the kingdom means, Right? And so you can see Peter working through his head. Okay, we got Jesus here. That's who I'm following. But then he shows up. He's got Moses here. He's got Elijah here. Man, this is where the kingdom starts. We're setting up tents right here. Like, we're going to post up right here. This is going to spread from here. We're going to take over. We're going to oust the Romans. We're going to do all of that. Jesus is going to take over. His kingship starts right here up on top of this mountain, right? And... I think that's probably why he gets interrupted, as you said. Yeah, he does. He gets interrupted so rudely by, by the Father, right? And what does the Father say? This is really important. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. In him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. What does that remind us of? There's another story, obviously, in Matthew. The baptism. Another one of those cosmic events. There's like four. Yeah, there's a, another one of those cosmic events, right? We have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. Um, it's beautiful. It's this beautiful image of the, the Father saying to the Son, you are my Son. I love you, and I'm well pleased with you, Right? This time he has an extra message for him, which is, uh, listen to him, Peter, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah. And um, one of the things that I just find really beautiful is that father-son relationship. One of the big issues I have with um, the larger big C church especially in America, in our culture, is, is what we've done to that father-son relationship. I think, I think we've done such an injustice in our theology and in the way that we teach about the father-son relationship. If this sounds familiar, let me know. Um, right? We have God the Father, 
who has to, because he's holy, has to have some payment for sin. And so he damns mankind, and we get Jesus, and then Jesus is going to stand between us and the Father, right, and protect us from this angry Father that wants to condemn us, right, and he's going to represent us, and then the Father's wrath all just goes on to him, right? That's not what we're seeing in this narrative. If we go back and we look at the narrative um, that, that's being painted for us, the father and son relationship is beautiful and it's intimate. Um, it's not divided like this. The father and the son are united and one. We see this as Jesus says, you know, I and the father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father, right? We get this throughout all of the narrative that, that this is happening. I think... Also, and maybe this is the most important, is Jesus' reaction to them. They, they fall on their faces, terrified. Terrified. The voice comes, interrupts Peter. Now everybody knows. Oh, okay. They're terrified. Does Jesus affirm their terror? No. Jesus comes, he says, no. Don't be afraid. There's nothing. Why, like, why are you guys afraid? There's nothing for you to be afraid of. There's nothing for you to be afraid of. Jesus' relationship with the Father is one that we get to share in. Jesus' relationship with the Father is one that we get to share in. Colossians 1 says, Jesus says that all things were made for, by, and through Jesus Christ. That he is the, the visual image of the invisible God. And if that's true, then when God says to Jesus, this is my son, and I love him, I'm well pleased with him, what is, Jesus, what is God saying to us? Right? You know, this is something that I struggle with in my life, with my relationship with my father, we have a good relationship. Um, but it, it was real rocky for me. It was real rocky for me growing up. I uh, butted heads with him a whole lot growing up. And I struggle, to this day, I struggle with this idea of being a, a wanted son. Right? And, and for me, this passage erases all of that. Whenever I, I feel that way, I just look at this passage. Because what God is saying to Jesus He's saying to, to each one of you, he's saying to me, that, that you're his child and that he loves you. I think um, we're going to, so there's, there's four places in the New Testament where this word transfigure is used. Three are in the Synoptic Gospels about this issue, the transfiguration. The fourth one, the fourth one is found in Romans 12. So we're going to close today with this. This is my application for you. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be transfigured, be metamorphosis." Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing that you may observe what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Paul says this is our spiritual worship, that we are to participate in the transfiguration. Um, my professor, Baxter Kruger, says that the human mind was always created to work in tandem with the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. That the human mind was created to be in fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. And it's through the Holy Spirit that this metamorphosis happens, right? That, that, that our minds are to be transformed in the image. Part of that is recognizing our place. I, th- I think so many times we fear this God. That we, we dig Jesus, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit, and we're pretty sure God loves us. But maybe not. Maybe only some of us. Maybe only when we do the right thing. This is what we have to transform. This is what needs to be transformed in our minds. This is where we need to take sides with Jesus. Take sides with Jesus in the way that we see His Father. Take sides with Jesus in the way that we see the Holy Spirit. Take sides with Jesus in the way that we see ourselves. And let our minds be completely transfigured. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for loving us. We thank You for calling us to Your presence, bringing us in. We thank You that You leave no one out, and that everybody has a place at the table, and that all are invited to partake. God, we ask that You transfigure our minds and we're able to see you in everyone that we meet. In this we pray. Amen.